This is Space Time Series 24, Episode 54. Coming up on Space Time. A key test for the new Lunar Gateway space station. Strato launch undertakes its second test flight. And new warnings from Germany and Sweden about Iran's growing nuclear ambitions. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. NASA's new Lunar Gateway space station has passed a key hot fire test of the main thrusters on its power and propulsion element module. The Hall Effect Iron Propulsion Thrusters will propel Gateway's first modules to lunar orbit and will then help maintain the orbital position of the space station during its expected 15-year lifespan. Gateway will act as a staging post for manned missions to the lunar surface and eventually onto Mars. The plan calls for the first two modules, the PPE or Power and Propulsion Element module, and the HALO or Habitation and Logistics Outpost module to be launched together aboard a Falcon Heavy rocket in May 2024 and positioned in time for the Artemis 3 mission which will return humans to the lunar surface. The Power and Propulsion Element module was originally being developed at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory as part of the now cancelled Asteroid Redirect mission. And when that mission was cancelled, the solar electric propulsion system was repurposed for Gateway. More ambitiously, the power and propulsion element modules designed to ultimately transfer the reusable Gateway space station to Mars orbit. It'll also serve as the communications centre for Gateway. The 9-ton module will generate 60 kilowatts of solar electric power using rollout solar arrays for its Hall effect thrusters, which can be supplemented by chemical propulsion. HALO will be the main habitation section of the space station. It will also include the telecommunications section of the European Space Station's Asprite service module, the rest of which includes a small windowed habitation section as well as docking ports and airlock and refueling infrastructure for the space station and for lunar landers. Asprite will launch in 2027. Another component, called the International Habitation Module, or IHAB, is being jointly developed by the European Space Agency and the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency. It's slated for launch in 2026 and will include a new Canadian Space Agency robotic arm. Other proposed elements include logistics modules for supplies and a purpose-built airlock module for extravehicular activities outside the space station, including a docking port for deep space transport. Astronauts will occupy the 40-ton Gateway space station for up to 90 days at a time. Gateway will be positioned in a highly elliptical translunar orbit known as the near-rectilinear halo orbit. Instead of orbiting around the Moon in low lunar orbit, like the International Space Station does around the Earth, Gateway will follow a highly eccentric path. At its closest, it'll pass to within 3,000 kilometers of the lunar surface but it will then swing back out again to some 70,000 kilometres. The idea is to bring Gateway both relatively close to the Moon for excursions down to the lunar surface and also allow for shorter trips for spacecraft travelling to and from the Earth, loaded with crews and supplies. Thing is, most current rockets don't have enough power to reach the Moon in one go, but they would be able to reach Gateway. 
It means the European Space Agency's Ariane 6 could be used to deliver supplies for astronauts for use on missions to the Moon or deeper into space. At the other end of the journey, NASA will use a modified version of SpaceX's Starship, known as the Starship Human Landing System, or HLS, as a lunar lander to transport crews, robots, supplies and infrastructure down to the Moon's surface when the gateway is closest to the Moon, which happens about every seven days. Likewise, a transfer window back to Gateway opens about every seven days for the return trip from the lunar surface. Gateway's orbit rotates together with the Moon, and as seen from Earth, it'll appear a little like a lunar halo. Orbits like this are possible because of the interplay between the Earth and Moon's gravitational forces. As two large bodies dance through space, a smaller object can be caught in a variety of stable or near-stable positions in relation to the orbiting masses, also known as libration or Lagrangian points. These locations are perfect for planning long-term missions and to some extent dictate the very design of the spacecraft, what it can carry to and from orbit and how much energy it needs to get there and stay there. So, travelling on the near rectilinear halo orbit, one revolution of the Gateway Space Station in its orbit around the Moon would take about seven Earth days. The period was chosen to limit the number of eclipses when the Gateway would be shrouded by the Earth or Moon shadow. However, near rectilinear halo orbits are slightly unstable, and objects in these orbits have a tendency to drift away. So, regular small station-keeping manoeuvres will be needed to keep Gateway in position. And that's where the power and propulsion element module comes in, acting as a key to the entire Artemis program. This report from NASA TV. We are going to the moon to inspire the next generation, to advance our understanding of the universe so that we can share the benefits with all, here and now. We are going to use partners who see the critical roles they play as nothing short of advancing the cause of humanity. Today we take the next step in the Artemis program towards our Moon 2024 objective with a partnership that is the first of its kind. Mexar Technologies will launch and demonstrate the foundational element of Gateway, the power and propulsion element. We believe in the need to accelerate the advancements of science, technology, and human exploration. The Gateway is our lunar orbiting station and is a critical piece of sustaining our presence on the Moon as a hub for science, technology, and human travel. The Gateway will allow us to reach areas of the Moon that have never been accessible before. The Gateway will be built in two phases. The first is a minimalistic design that will prepare the way for human landings by 2024. The second phase will see the addition of modules that expand the habitation and long-term science capabilities by 2028, thus enabling sustained missions to the Moon. The initial element of the Gateway and the focus of this partnership is the power and propulsion element or PPE as we call it. This element will be the source of thrust, power, communication, and the foundation upon which all other modules are added. The unique nature of this partnership allows us to accelerate our lunar return. Together, we are poised to meet a launch date in 2022. Initially, the PPE will be owned and operated in orbit around the moon by our commercial partner, NASA will take delivery of the element after a successful demonstration. The systems developed here will drive down the cost of future lunar exploration and enable sustained missions on the surface. It will also demonstrate what is possible for future missions to Mars. One such example of this focused development is the advancement of a proven technology with the PPE's engine, 
a solar electric propulsion thruster. These thrusters were pioneered in the 1960s and have proven to be incredibly efficient and reliable with hundreds of thousands of hours of successful spaceflight operations. Specifically, SEP systems are known for their fine control of spacecraft due to their low thrust, their ability to fire continuously for years at a time, and their ability to allow a craft to stop, start, and change directions to visit multiple destinations. This partnership calls for the demonstration of a new electric propulsion system on Gateway's PPE using advanced hull thruster technology. The Gateway PPE will provide three times the power of current solar electric propulsion systems. Our return to the moon is now well underway. Maxar Technologies is now tasked with bringing their unique power propulsion element design to life, launching it into orbit around the moon and demonstrating its capabilities to NASA. And in that report from NASA TV, we heard from NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine, Gateway Project Manager Dan Hartman, Gateway Power and Propulsion Element Director Michelle Gates, Gateway Power and Propulsion Element Manager Mike Barrett, and NASA Associate Administrator William Gesteinmeier. This is Space Time. Still to come, Strata Launch undertakes its second test flight, two years after the maiden flight, and 60 more Starlink satellites placed into orbit. All that and much more still to come on Space Time. The Strata Launch Mothership has finally undertaken a second test flight, two years after the maiden flight first sent the giant twin fuselage six-engine plane into the skies. The flight took off from Strata Launch's base in California's Mojave Desert. The giant aircraft, second only in size to the Antonov AN-225 Maria, is designed to drop-launch orbital rockets weighing up to 250 tons from high altitude. Built by Burt Rutan Scaled Composites, in a specially constructed hangar at the Mojave Air and Spaceport in California, the aircraft rolled out in 2017. Its stunning design is a supersized version of Scaled Composites' Virgin Galactic White Knight 2 mothership, used to launch the company's Spaceship 2 wing spaceplane. Strato Launch is powered by six Pratt & Whitney PW4056 engines positioned on pylons outboard of each fuselage. Many of the aircraft systems have been adopted from the Boeing 747-400, including the engines, avionics, flight deck and landing gear. It has a maximum takeoff weight of 590 tonnes off a 3.7-kilometre long runway and a wingspan of 117 metres, even greater than the 68-metre wingspan used by the famous Howard Hughes H-4 flying boat, the Spruce Goose. Strata launch first flew on April 13, 2019, reaching an altitude of 5,200 metres or 17,000 feet and a speed of 305 kilometres per hour during its two-hour and 29-minute flight from the Mojave Desert Air and Spaceport. The future of Strata launch had been in doubt ever since the death of the company's founder, Paul Allen, back in October 2018. The new test is part of a push by the company's new owners to market the 340-ton aircraft to launch hypersonic vehicles. They say it could also be used to air-launch up to three orbital Pegasus XL rockets at a time or the Sierra Nevada Dream Chaser orbital spaceplane. This is Space Time. Still to come, 60 more Starlink satellites placed into orbit and German and Swedish intelligence agencies warn of the growing efforts by Iran to obtain the technology needed to develop nuclear weapons. All that and more still to come 
on Space Time. SpaceX has successfully launched its 25th Starlink mission, placing another 60 Starlink broadband internet satellites into orbit. The 70-metre-tall Falcon 9 was launched from the Cape Canaveral Space Force Station in Florida. It was the 120th flight of a Falcon rocket, coming 15 years to the day after the very first launch of SpaceX's original Falcon 1, way, way back on March 24, 2006. For this latest mission, the 60 Starlink satellites on board were successfully deployed into a 550-kilometre-high orbit. Meanwhile, the Falcon 9 core stage returned to Earth safely following the launch, landing on a drone ship pre-positioned 630 kilometres downrange in the North Atlantic Ocean. It was the seventh launch and landing of the same booster, and the 81st successful recovery of an orbital-class rocket by SpaceX. The Starlink network could eventually number more than 30,000 satellites. But for now at least, initial plans call for just 1,584 spacecraft, much to the disappointment of astronomers who see the Starlink train streak across the skies, hampering their vital scientific research. This is Space Time. Still to come, German and Swedish intelligence agencies warn of growing efforts by Iran to obtain nuclear weapons technology. And later in the science report, a new study warns that sleeping less than six hours a night could put you at a higher risk of dementia. All that and much more still to come on Space Time. German and Swedish intelligence agencies have warned of growing efforts by Iran to obtain the technology and equipment needed to build nuclear weapons. The warning comes as the Islamic Republic continues to claim that its nuclear activities are for peaceful purposes only. The German intelligence agency in its April 29th report says Tehran has not ceased its strive to obtain weapons of mass destruction or the products used for their manufacture as well as the corresponding weapons carrier systems, a reference to the ongoing development by Tehran of nuclear missiles under the cover of a space program. The intelligence document warned that Germany remains in the focus of intelligence espionage activities by the Islamic Republic. It also found there were some 1,050 known members of the Iranian-sponsored Hezbollah terrorist organization living in Germany. Last year, the German government outlawed Hezbollah's activities in the Federal Republic, joining the United States, Canada, the Arab League, Israel, the United Kingdom, the Netherlands and many other nations, which classify Hezbollah as a terrorist organization. Meanwhile, Sweden's security service says Tehran's been seeking Swedish technology for its nuclear weapons program. The warning was disclosed in its 2020 intelligence report, which found that the Islamic Republic of Iran, together with China and Russia, remain Sweden's biggest security threats. The Security Service report also warns that Iran is conducting industrial espionage, which mainly targets Swedish high-tech industries and products which can be used in nuclear weapons programs. It says Iran is investing heavy resources in this area, and some of those resources are targeting Sweden. 
The Swedish and German intelligence documents come in the wake of recent warnings by the United Nations that Iran is continuing to push forward with its nuclear activities. Highlighted by the startup of a cascade of 164 IR-6 centrifuges and two cascades, including 30 IR-5s and 30 IR-6S centrifuges. Centrifuges are key to enriching uranium. By rapidly spinning uranium hexafluoride gas, thereby separating out the fissile uranium-235 from the non-fissile uranium-238. The move is the latest breach of Tehran's 2015 Vienna Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty designed to prevent Iran from developing nuclear weapons. Under the 2015 deal, Iran agreed to only use IR-1 centrifuges for uranium enrichment, all it needs for its nuclear power stations. But it did allow Iran to have a limited number of IR-4 and IR-5 devices purely for testing. The International Atomic Energy Agency is concerned that Iran's stockpile of enriched uranium is now more than 14 times over the limit it agreed to under the Vienna Treaty. The nuclear watchdog says that as of February the 16th this year, Iran's total enriched uranium stockpile stood at 2,967.8 kilograms. The limit Tehran agreed to was 300 kilos. There are also concerns about Iran continuing to restrict nuclear weapons inspectors from accessing suspected nuclear sites. It's still not explained the presence of nuclear material at one undeclared site, or explained what happened to a missing metal disk of uranium, whose only use is in a thermonuclear bomb. In fact, producing or acquiring plutonium or uranium metals or their alloys is yet another violation of the 2015 nuclear accord created by Tehran. The latest estimates suggest Iran now has enough enriched uranium for at least two nuclear weapons. And it continues to develop and test its nuclear missile delivery system under the guise of a space program. Tehran's developing long-range nuclear missiles in collaboration with North Korea, which also developed its nuclear missiles under the cover of being a space program. In February, Iran successfully launched its Zoljana-1 rocket on a suborbital flight. The interesting thing is, the rocket, which uses solid fuel first and second stages, together with a small liquid fuel vernier engine kickstage, was designed to be flown not from a conventional launch pad, but from an army mobile launcher, a system normally exclusively used for strategic weapons, and one described by the Iranian Defense Ministry as providing special capabilities. That flight was yet another breach of Tehran's nuclear weapons ban treaty, which prohibits the Islamic Republic from developing missiles capable of carrying nuclear warheads. And it follows tests by Tehran of multiple independently targeted re-entry vehicle warheads, known as MIRVs, which are used by missiles carrying multiple thermonuclear warheads. There are also concerns by the International Atomic Energy Agency over the Islamic Republic's research into various fusing, arming and firing systems designed to make its missiles more capable of readily delivering a nuclear warhead. This is Space Time. And time now to take yet another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A new study warns that sleeping less than six hours a night could put you at a higher risk of dementia in later life. The findings, reported in the journal Nature Communications, used survey data from 7,959 people who have been involved in an ongoing health study since 1985. 
Researchers looked at sleep data from when the participants were aged 50, 60 and 70 against those who went on to be diagnosed with dementia. At all ages, less sleep was associated with a higher risk of dementia, with a 30% increased risk for those who consistently slept less throughout the years. A new study has concluded that Earth's worst mass extinction event some 252 million years ago evolved much slower on land than what it did in the sea. The end Permian mass extinction event was triggered by massive volcanic eruptions causing catastrophic climate change. And within 100,000 years, more than 85% of all species living in the oceans went extinct. Now, people assume that because the marine extinction happened over such a short period of geologic time, life on land should have followed the same pattern. But the thing is, the new studies are suggesting that's not what happened. A report in the Journal of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences claims a detailed study of the fossil record of 588 land animals that lived in what is now South Africa's Karoo Basin at the time of the Permian mass extinction found that on land, extinction took 10 times longer. One reason for the discrepancy could be that oceans can absorb chemical changes and stabilise themselves until they reach a tipping point, after which there's a sudden ecosystem collapse, similar to what's starting to happen now with breakdowns in ocean acidification and coral bleaching events. Paleontologists have discovered the fossilised remains of a new species of seropod dinosaur in northern Chile. Araka Lysanatev lived in what is now the Atacama region of Chile during the late Cretaceous period between 84 and 66 million years ago. A report in the journal Cretaceous Research says the partial skeleton, which includes fossilized cervical and dorsal vertebra, as well as humerus, femur and lower spine, are from a subadult about 6.3 meters or 22 feet long. It's the most complete seropod dinosaur ever recorded in Chile or the South Pacific margin of South America. Seropods were large herbivorous dinosaurs with elephant-like bodies and legs, a long neck and small head at one end, and a long tail at the other. A new book by environmental scientist Shana Swan claims human penises are shrinking and becoming malformed because of pollution. Swan says the cause of the shrinkage is the presence of phthalate esters commonly found in manufactured plastics which impact human genitals by altering the hormone-producing endocrine system and, as a consequence, has led to more males being born with small penises. Swan's findings are based on multiple peer-reviewed studies, including one which found sperm levels among males in Western countries had dropped by more than 50% over the past four decades. There's growing outrage in the United Kingdom following the release of new guidelines recommending acupuncture as part of a regiment for dealing with chronic pain. Acupuncture was developed in a time long before science-based medicine and before anything significant was understood about biology, the normal functioning of the human body, or disease pathology. One of the big problems with acupuncture is that it lacks any plausible scientific mechanism to work. That's because there are no life energy meridians for it to work through, and so there is no chi to require balance and flow. There is a great deal of literature on the clinical effects of acupuncture, and almost all of it's negative, with scientifically controlled clinical trials showing that acupuncture simply does not work. Mind you, a lot of people are surprised at that finding, probably because the media tends to cherry-pick apparent positive studies and tends to uncritically publish press releases by those promoting acupuncture. 
Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics says the British decision to recommend acupuncture has been criticised. Yeah, this is a group called the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, which they abbreviate their name to NICE. Apparently they leave the H off for health, but never mind. It is part of the UK national health system and basically is there to offer advice and guidance to medical professionals on practices, on techniques and technologies, etc. And they put out a position paper and advice on uh, chronic pain management and they suggest various things that you can do. And amongst it is they suggest acupuncture should be part of the regimen for treating chronic pain. Now, acupuncture can have a bit of a function. It can be like a minor analgesic. But isn't right? it just a placebo effect? It is, it is largely a placebo. It's very hard to test, but it's largely placebo. Uh, pain is a very um, subjective, subjective thing. thing. And, yeah, and measuring pain is, is a subjective, but it has been suggested there is some small potential use in that. There is sham acupuncture, which is supposedly sticking the needles in places where they're not supposed to be the, the meridians, the energy lines. But then if the energy lines don't really exists. It's all sham acupuncture, so it, it doesn't make a lot of difference. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, the whole concept of acupuncture about meridian lines which travel through your body and you can tap into the energy flows along these lines is ridiculous. It doesn't. It's not there. So therefore, you have to think, why is there a mild analgesic? It might be placebo. It might actually be just sticking pins in your body might make people feel nice. So Being skewered by a metal or wooden spike, I don't know if that would make me feel nice. It would certainly make me forget about any other pain I was having. <laughs> Well, it's not quite a wooden stake through the heart, right? But I know, I know. But the trouble is that the it, the underlying philosophy behind acupuncture is just not correct. It was it's just based on these energy flows and they don't exist. Yeah, maybe it's just triggering some sort of natural body reaction because the body's being attacked. In any case, whether there is a mild analgesic or not, incorporating it into a chronic pain treatment is um, probably ill-advised. It also can be dangerous. There are cases of people, there's one case I was reading about recently where a woman's heart was punctured because the needle was put in far enough and it bypassed the bones that are in, in the way, the sternum or whatever, the, the ribs that are in the way of the heart. It went straight through and pierced their heart and they died. So, I mean, just sticking in needles is, is not, a, it's not a, a, a simple technique. They can be dirty needles, of course, that are not properly sterilized. Strictly speaking, if you're going to be using needles, you want to throw them away after every time they're used. Well, I'm sure a lot of acupuncturists don't do that. So there's a whole lot of issues. So this, from an authoritative body in the UK, to suggest that acupuncture should be part of a, a regimen to treat chronic pain is just ridiculous, and it has been heavily criticised for suggesting this. That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. That's the show for now. Space Time is available every Monday, Wednesday and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favourite podcast download provider and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Space Time's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. 
And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel, and on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.